So I'd like to take a moment to provide a bit of background about uh, from where the project that I'll share with you today emerged. When I started as an assistant professor in kinesiology and physical education at the University of Toronto in 2019, I inherited a course related to ethics and power. So this course is the last mandatory course of the Bachelor of Kinesiology degree with up to 250 senior undergraduate students. Within kinesiology, there are many sub-disciplines. Some of my colleagues study the biophysical and physiological aspects of the human body and movement. Others focus on behavioral or psychological aspects of sports psychology. And within my subdiscipline, which we call physical cultural studies or sometimes the sociology of sport, we're really interested in looking at issues of politics, power, media, gender, race, etc. Within our discipline, we have a thousand students at the University of Toronto, 250 in each, um, each level. And I was assigned to teach the fourth year mandatory ethics course. And I was assigned to teach in a room that looks much like this, a completely inaccessible lecture theater. There were stairs up to a stage and raked seating, including a balcony. The lighting was horrible and not adjustable, clearly not designed for someone of my skin tone. And so from the farthest reaches of the room, I was told that students could only see my teeth when I was on this stage. Previous versions of this course had focused on biomedical ethics and Foucault's biopower frameworks. And I knew that for me in this room, that just wouldn't suffice. We needed to name race within our understandings of ethics, power, health, kinesiology, sport, recreation, and all of the subjects that my students are so passionate about. So the task that I took on was to redesign an upper year mandatory course, Ethics and Power in Kinesiology, Physical Education and Health Fields with an anti-racist decolonizing theory and praxis. There are many pieces to refocusing ethics within uh, anti-racism and decoloniality. Clearly, there are some things that I didn't have any control over that first year. For example, the, the physical classroom space or even the background knowledge that my students were coming to my course with. Many of them had been steeped in the biophysical aspects of kinesiology and had very little exposure to the physical cultural side of gender and race issues. The things that I could design, the content, the approaches, the readings and the assignments, I took on with fervor and uh, started from scratch. I was really fortunate in this endeavor to be able to hire a dear colleague, Dr. Deborah Krieger, who's pictured here on the slide beside me. She currently works as an assistant manager, co-curricular equity, diversity and inclusion and belonging programs in the Faculty of Kinesiology. And uh, that first year in 2019, Deborah worked with me as a sessional instructional assistant to help redesign and deliver the course. And subsequently as a research assistant in my lab focused on ideas, indigeneity, diaspora, equity, and anti-racism in sport. So the ideas research lab and me as an individual took on this task of thinking about ethics, 
in kinesiology, but particularly bringing a race or anti-racism and decolonial focus to our teaching and to our scholarship in terms of working towards a publication on this topic. Deborah and I were friends, colleagues, a supervisor and supervisee, a mentor and mentee, a course instructor and a TA. We had many different relationships. And I mentioned this specifically because we discovered that relationships are actually core to ethics. And we've been working on developing relational integrity as an ethical stance. That is principles of vulnerability, mutual dependency, and respecting the autonomy of each other. We rely on each other and our relationships with other scholars, those who have come before us. These all depend on and help to develop ethical behaviors and ethical decision-making within kinesiology. So to do decolonial work, we must first decide on the principles of colonialism we are working with within and against. We draw from Latin American and Caribbean traditions, specifically the work of Maldonado Torres, who uses a coloniality framework. Coloniality is maintained alive in books, in the criteria for academic performance, in cultural patterns, in common sense, in the self-image of people, in aspirations of self, and so many other aspects of our modern experience. In a way, as modern subjects, we breathe coloniality all the time and every day. So with this framework in mind, if coloniality is in the air we breathe, an everyday assumed background state of being, and core to our educational institutions, our research, and specifically the models that are available as resources for biomedical ethics, then we have significant work to do to unlearn these colonial and racist habits and patterns. Another aspect or dimension of coloniality that we are working within is specific to the Canadian or the Turtle Island context. Depicted here is the two row wampum belt. This is literally a belt or a sash that is made from the shells of a quahog, which is a small clam, thousands of small clams, predominantly found on the Eastern shores of Turtle Island, which is this landmass, otherwise known as North America. So this belt is a sacred item that takes many, many hours to create. The two row wampum belt covenant was shared between indigenous and European groups in Fort Niagara in 1754, offered in a tobacco smoking ceremony, making it equivalent to a legally binding document. The two rows of purple that are separated by three rows of white shells tell a story depicting European and indigenous peoples side by side. This is meant to ask, act as testimony and a commitment to peaceably share the land and to walk and row in parallel. This is a material manifestation of all of our treaty obligations. And when I first heard this description about walking and rowing in parallel, it occurred to me that the moving body, the human movement of uh, First Peoples of Turtle Island is integral to our understanding of treaty relationships. So what does it mean to move in parallel? When we are side by side in a community with others, we can mirror their actions. We can pick them up when they fall. If we're truly moving in parallel, our paths with them will not cross. We'll always be able to share in the privileges that our city, our educational institutions, 
our medical and healthcare, or our sport and recreation systems, all of the privileges that these have to offer. And so if we think about that, moving in parallel, moving alongside someone through our research and teaching, we have to acknowledge that the way this has been done predominantly is relying on colonial and scientific, Western scientific understandings of the body and movement. Much of the study in kinesiology is committed to the advancement of the function of the human body in sport or leisure or health. And though there may seem as though there's nothing wrong with this goal in and of itself, examination of the theoretical and ethical foundations of measuring the body and determining which bodies are fit reveals cause for concern, particularly for those of us with an anti-racism lens for our work and specifically an intersectional lens. This idea of fitness is directly related to ideas of inclusion and belonging, ideas of uh, expulsion and incarceration. And so we need to think about who is fit and how would we know? The scientifically backed enterprise of eugenics, which was devoted to improving the genetic quality of white European races by removing those people who were deemed inferior, gained in traction on both sides of the Atlantic. It would take the Holocaust to show the world that the logical endpoint of measuring the human body and uh, assigning meaning to those measurements would, um, sorry, that the logical endpoint would actually discredit much of this science. Forcing eugenics to be a thing of the past. However, the ongoing measurement of the body within our sport systems, and our health systems has changed very little. The body's dimensions, speed, power, just as they were used on plantations that enslaved African peoples, continue to be used to measure black bodies in particular in sport and in health. And we see a few images here of uh, the sport of football where these measurement techniques are uh, common. My recent literature review on black women in sport revealed that by far the most research that has been done within kinesiology with, with black women pathologizes black bodies as overweight and concerns the issues of exercise and sport as devoted to concerns with obesity. This kind of deficit thinking about black women in particular is uh, parallel, <laughs> related to, imbricated with, the erasure of blackness from academia more generally and from kinesiology specifically. If we're not fat, sometimes we're just plain invisible. And it's for this reason that I want to shift the discourse within kinesiology with my research. I stand before you here today, letting you know that I am visible. With my efforts, I want to change how these education systems think about race and ethics within sport. I'm inspired by the work of George Day and Agnes Caliste who wrote, our schools, colleges, and universities continue to be powerful discursive sites through which race knowledge is produced, organized, and regulated. Marginalized bodies are continually silenced and rendered invisible, not simply through the failure to take issues of race and social oppression seriously, 
but through the constant negation of multiple lived experiences and alternative knowledges. So I refuse to be invisible and demand understanding alternative knowledges, certainly material that I was never taught as an undergraduate kinesiology student. So there, in the last decade, there have been uh, a number of scholars who have begun to critique kinesiology's whiteness. And this critique has moved outside of our hallway conversations and into the academic literature. Douglas and Hallis in 2013 exposed the centrality of cultures of whiteness in Canadian kinesiology program, programs, including curricula, pedagogies, and white bodies. Azarito clarified health as desirable, but also as a force which conforms bodies to moving bodies over social justice, critical thought, and contemporary and historical lived human oppression forecloses discussions of the colonial roots of the discipline. My colleague Deborah Krieger and I outlined the relative invisibility of Black, Indigenous, and people of color, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and two-spirit, and other gender and sexuality groups neurodivergent people, disabled people, and women within kinesiology research. We recognize that we needed a new approach. Generally speaking, the critiques of Eurocentric, white supremacist, upper-class masculinist philosophies of health and the body have a direct impact on the limited assumptions of what constitutes an ethical dilemma and how we might move through it. We argue that this can be rectified by engaging with other knowledges and thinking about ethics as an embodied relationship between people. In our article, we position service providers or kinesiology practitioners and service recipients who may be uh, students, athletes, patients, or research participants as uh, those who will be engaging in ethical relationships. We realized that we needed a model that would emphasize embodied relationships and interactions, consider historical timelines and spatial contexts, and encourage reflection on epistemology and anti-racism principles. We needed a model that would promote the transformation of spaces of kinesiological practice into ethical spaces, as per Cree scholar Willie Ermine. We needed a model of ethics that promoted the rebalancing of embodied power relations and inter-epistemological and anti-racist engagement. We wanted to promote practitioner praxis of vulnerability and the co-production of knowledge about an individual's body. We wanted to emphasize that all people, even those who are marginalized, uh, deserve to engage respectfully with kinesiology practitioners. And we need to stop thinking about these categories of, for example, neurodivergence or disability or gender as distinct 
and think of them in intersectional ways. We also considered the communication of this model. We wanted a model that would act to expand current kinesiology students' biomedical-focused education. So we started from uh, Beauchamp and Childress's uh, four points principles of ethics, namely autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence, and justice, and we expanded on these. This model is meant to be a bit of a bridge that will start students to recognize the ongoing impacts of colonialism and racism as kinesiology practitioners, and to start thinking and acting in decolonizing and anti-racist ways in their praxis. So I'd like to take a few minutes to share with you those other scholars that we are in relationship with through their writings, their music, uh, their energies that help to inspire us to create the decolonizing kinesiology ethics model. So I'll start here with these two figures. I'd like to tell you a bit about the founder of critical race theory, Dr. Derek Albert Bell, and uh, Dr. Ruba Maria, an associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. So Dr. Bell was a lawyer and a civil rights activist and the first tenured African-American professor of law at Harvard Law School. He was one of the few black lawyers working for the US Justice Department in 1959 when the government asked him to resign his membership in the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP, because it was thought that his objectivity and that of the Justice Department might be compromised or called into question. Bell left the Justice Department rather than giving up his NAACP membership. According to a website that is devoted to his scholarship, quote, when he joined the faculty of Harvard Law School in 1969, Professor Bell brought his experience in and reflections on the civil rights movement and racial inequality to the center of his teaching and scholarship. When I read that, I thought that's what I've got to do, center race. It's not tangential to all of these uh, issues around sport, human movement, health, and the body that we're studying. Uh, the American medical doctor, Dr. Rupa Maria created a health justice model that clarifies the ways that inflammation or diseases of the body are indeed diseases of society that result from the capitalism-driven supremacy of humans, of males, and of whites within colonialism. Maria connects health to moving bodies, colonization, capitalist exploitation, and ongoing land dispossession. She directly links various power relations of colonial systems to individual health experiences. She spoke in 2018 at a Bioneers conference and noted, being black doesn't somehow make you biologically inferior with a worse, worse life expectancy, higher rates of diabetes, higher rates of heart disease, and higher rates of infant mortality. Race isn't the issue we need to look at, it's the racism. It's the social structures that are creating the underlying diseases. So armed with these two um, really foundational thinkers related to sport, sorry, related to health and uh, related to race, we created a decolonizing kinesiology ethics model. I'll go on to clarify a few more uh, inspirational scholars that our uh, teaching and research are in conversation with. 
Firstly, with C. Wright Mills, an American sociologist who stated, it's imperative for one to grasp what is going on in the world and to understand what is happening in themselves as minute points of the intersections of biography and history within society. So connecting the personal to the political is at the foundation of this model. But in other words, we cannot settle for the stereotypes of representations of who we and they are and Sylvia Winter helps us to understand this. She's a Jamaican scholar of African and Afro-American studies. And she explained that the task before us will be to bring into being a new poetics of the relationship between concrete individual men and women and the socializing processes of the systems in which we live. So um, although she uses this uh, gender binary, she was quite aware of the many different ways we, every person shows up in the world. And she notes that the, it's the dispossession of lands twinned with the enslavement of human beings for disposable, coercible, and unpaid labor force that was indispensable to the founding of our new societies, uh, uh, particularly on Turtle Island. And uh, she clarifies that the, the hierarchies and the binaries of the dominant culture are actually uh, were justified through ethical decision-making, supposedly ethical decision-making of the juridical economic Christian systems of colonialism. So as Deborah Krieger and I you know, reviewed some of this literature around decolonizing, especially as it relates to ethics, we understood that a new ethics will require us to center the perspectives of those who were previously dispossessed and enslaved. To implement both Mills and Winter's calls for intersectional, societal, and introspective examinations, we trained our sociological imaginations on our own personal experiences in health and sport, where ability, gender, sexual, racial, and religious privileges and oppressions give us perspective on what decolonial frameworks would benefit kinesiology students. We also build on the work of Canadian kinesiology scholar, activist, athlete, artist, Danielle Piers in bringing the embodied and personal to scholarship. Their multidisciplinary approach to understanding and representing ethical issues of sport, movement, care sharing, and health resonates with our own understanding of the complexity of ethical issues faced by kinesiology students. After competing as both a stand-up basketball player and later as a Paralympic athlete, Dr. Pierce now writes extensively about physical activity, the medicalization and medical reproduction of disability and the disabling colonial cultures that sustain them, while also critiquing able-bodiedness and racism by working and performing as a dancer, choreographer, and director in social justice-oriented films. So this work is very inspiring because if we think outside of our colonial means of sharing information as I'm doing today through uh, academic talk or through our publications, and we think more broadly about art and music and dance and movement, all of the movement practices, not just formal sports, we can start to embrace a more broad, more uh, theoretically rich and diverse approach to ethics. What I'll do now is just to give you some details about the ethics model that we created. So the biggest part of the model focuses on social justice. 
And we made this, you know, a significant portion of this uh, visual image because we believe that social justice deserves significant attention alongside these other ethical principles. And that we wanted to make the colonial forces in kinesiology ethics visible and knowable. And so I love it when my students ask me, why is social justice so big? I think, okay, now's our chance to talk about it because what is social justice? If we're really thinking about colonialism in the way that Rupa Maria introduces us to it in terms of human supremacy, white supremacy and male supremacy, if that is the model of colonialism we're working with, or if we think about uh, Maldonado Torres's definition of coloniality as the air we breathe and everything that we know about excellence has derived from uh, colonial standards. If we think in the, using this kind of foundation, then a social justice uh, framework uh, foundation is necessary in order to resist the impact of colonialism and ongoing colonial practices on health and on sport has to be acknowledged among kinesiology practitioners, health practitioners, uh, sports scientists, in order to begin to address these injustices. So for the DCAM, social justice is conceptualized not only around socioeconomic fairness, but also other axes of difference, especially since negative social determinants of health are greater among BIPOC, LGBTQ2S+, neurodivergent and disabled groups and women, those who are excluded and marginalized through ongoing colonial processes. Sorry, I forgot to put that up before I said it, but there you go. <laughs> so uh, in addition to social justice, we focus on vulnerability. We did not see an emphasis in, on vulnerability in the biomedical models of ethics that we studied. And in fact, vulnerability is often used in medical conceptions of the body to describe populations or people and health and medical, that health and medical fields have taken advantage of. But instead, we propose that a focus on vulnerability should train future kinesiologists in how to identify their own and accept others' epistemologies and that is to embrace not knowing, to embrace listening to others, and to understand that even those people we serve might be experts. We focus on how, when, and why to apologize. We uh, propose that practitioners need to accept, embrace, and practice mutual vulnerability. Both the service provider and the person seeking service are vulnerable and mutually dependent there's always an added layer of patient practitioner epistemological power that is incredibly difficult to rebalance. And so practicing identifying this imbalance and working towards rebalancing is important. We encourage students to do what they can to redistribute power in the relationship through their interactions. So by inviting those who are in powerful positions to consider how is it that um, as a coach, for example, my students, or as a physical education teacher, my, my students, sorry, as a coach, my athletes, or as a physical education teacher, my students, how are we in relationship with each other, not just me as an expert being uh, invited here to share my expertise? In fact, we know that healthcare practitioners and kinesiologists are traditionally trained to be invulnerable, to be objective, 
And instead, we suggest that there are many other ways that we might relate to each other in a, with a more uh, ethical stance. The section of our model that focuses on autonomy, non-maleficence, and beneficence um, really draws from those traditional ethical models. And we suggest that kinesiology practitioners also have an obligation, for example, to respect the autonomy of those that they're serving, um, but they, they need to make sure that people can uh, make their own decisions about their own bodies or have necessary information to make those decisions and to not be coerced. What the decolonizing kinesiology ethics model offers uh, to, in, in terms of a decolonizing or anti-racist expansion to the principle of autonomy is an opportunity to think using broader or alternative epistemologies. The concept of an autonomous individual as one embodied person is in fact a Eurocentric definition reinforced through colonial sport and health practices. Autonomous students, clients, athletes, and patients may not uh, understand the medical information in the way that it's being presented. They may not want to be informed of risks, or they may not see themselves as solely responsible for their own decision-making, particularly if they're from a communal culture. So if the goal of respecting autonomy is to maximize benefits, beneficence and minimize harm or non-maleficence, then it's possible that family or community rather than individual definitions of autonomy, of benefits, and of harm should be adhered to. Critical questions must be asked of each interaction to reflect on how the practitioner has decided what the best outcomes are. Listening and talking, sorry, and taking into account embodied realities that are different to their own to consider options in ethical decision-making about the realities of someone else's body need to become imperative. And I'll give you an example that we see oftentimes within sport for development programs. These often involve outsiders, uh, for example, Canadians, um, moving to under-resourced communities, for example, um, in many countries in Africa or throughout the Caribbean, and they move there to teach and to create access to Eurocentric sports. And while their objectives may include girls empowerment or HIV AIDS education through sport, the methods very closely mirror colonial and Christian missions of the 1800s, whose objective was to civilize natives. So what is considered harm um, ought to be contextualized and divine, defined from particular communities' perspectives. The terms benefits and harms are neither universal nor neutral. So I'll just finish here with these uh, questions. So if we're thinking about harms and benefits, whose definition are we using? Who benefits and who is harmed? How does a practitioner come to know? Which logic support their ethical conclusions? The decolonizing kinesiology ethics model suggests practitioners reflect on these questions and take into account the embodied realities that are different from their own. And lastly, I'll cover our ideas around context and relationship. So this, the spherical shape of the model that we chose allows us to think about this additional dimension of space, time, movement, 
through each uh, movement through space and time and the interconnections among all of these uh, elements within the model. We want uh, practitioners and our kinesiology students to imagine each of these presences as interacting and overlapping spheres without solid borders. In every ethical encounter, there are two embodied people with histories, contexts, spaces, meeting in another place or space to which they may have different relationships. For example, in kinesiology, a service provider and service seeker might collide in the clinic. We could imagine an Asian athlete and a black athletic therapist, each that have his, her, their own context in space and time and interacting in a new space where assumptions might be made of them or where they might have an opportunity to challenge their own ways of knowing. The Lissavoy in 2010 claimed that ethical decision-making is only possible, quote, in the context of a recognition of the relations of power that have shaped history, and in particular, the political, cultural, economic, and epistemological processes of domination that have characterized colonialism and Eurocentrism. We know that ethical decision-making, particularly recognizing racial privilege and racial oppression will be a constant feature of our kinesiology students' experiences. And so in conclusion, we wanted to create a model that would expand on traditional bioethical models with influence from Dr. Rupa Maria's model of health justice and uh, Dr. Derek Bell's critical race theory to include intersectionality, contextualized and interconnected relationships, embodied realities and vulnerabilities, especially practitioner vulnerabilities to support kinesiologists in their reflection and actions towards anti-racist work. In order for them to do decolonizing work that balances, uh, balances power imbalances, <laughs> and broadens epistemologies of the body, they will need to think using an anti-racist lens. And ultimately this will move us all towards more just care, sport, recreation, and leisure. I believe that ethics is an embodied relationship between people. And I'm really enthusiastic to share with you some of my other research that is related to race and sport and to have you help me uh, think through how we can create relationships between service providers and service recipients that are based in an ethics of care. Thank you so much. <laughs>